0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, we are back this week with part two of my chat with Kim Brophy. If you missed part one, I strongly encourage that you go back in your podcast app and listen to that first. Um because this conversation picks up right where we left off last week, I hope you enjoy it. I keep coming back to the majority of my clientele would be um is sport dog people, so a lot of agility people, a growing number of people in bite sports as well, mm-hmm. and so we're talking about dogs that, due to their perception of these things, will exhibit a lot of highly kind of problematic behaviors for right. us um and for me, I do think it is so important for us to say, you know, I don't think that we get to say to the person, "No, you have to just tolerate," right the the border collie biting the child, right? No, that's not true. That's not what we're saying. Nope. Um, but we are saying, recognize why this is so hard for this dog, mm-hmm. and then maybe maybe we can take a more compassionate approach to helping them through this, right? And kind of saying, I know that with my dogs. Um, I have a 5-year-old niece. I do not actually ask my border collies to hang out with my 5-year-old niece.
1: Right. And I have my my border collie has been on the other side of a baby gate since he came to my house because I had small children. They had friends over every single play date ever when they were growing up. Was the border collie in the room? No. Could he walk through the room and go with me from point A to point B? Sure. But I didn't just leave him to try to navigate those circumstances on his own. And, you know, I think we have that expectation that it's just going to be one big happy family, everyone all on top of each other in every circumstance ever and the dog will just understand how best to navigate those circumstances when oftentimes they don't and you know when i was growing up in atlanta in the 70s i mean the dogs were still loose for crying out loud in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s they you know, yes, there are problems with that. And I'm not saying go out and unleash the hounds people, but I'm saying that the leashed world of constant confinement and indoor lifestyle has come with a real price for them. They don't just come home and fall asleep by the fire at the end of the day. They're, they're literally with us almost 24 seven and watching our every move. Um, And, you know, that's it it creates a lot of mental health problems for them to be trapped in that little social box with us, like a reality TV house all day long.
0: It does. And I think people are, people are constantly kind of frustrated with me because I really, really harp on off leash exercise opportunities. The majority of the dogs, especially the, I think all dogs, because especially the dogs that I work with. Working breeds like herding dogs. Yeah really, if they don't have that opportunity to move their body, um, specifically free of kind of triggering stuff going on, like yep. people are stunned that when I say, you know, walking them on a leash to the park and then throwing the chuck it ball and then leashing them again and walking them back home. It's not it. It's not actually what I'm talking about and is not actually helping you. Yep. Um, it frustrates people and it. I understand we live in a leash law society, mm-hmm. so it is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of behavior problems that have actually been solved, stamp done, in my career, by simply implementing off-leash exercise. Oh my
1: gosh! Yeah,
0: speaks so highly to this that yes, we trap them in. I think it would help us all to think of them as captive animals because they are right. Thank you. Right. So we trap them. We have, you know, I say, I say to people like, when's the last time you went to a zoo picture, a zoo enclosure now picture that your dog lives in there. Now, does that make you a little bit sad? Mm -hmm. Like, and now think what, what would make it better? Mm Mm-hmm. And now that actually is where your dog lives and you do need to make it better. <laughs> yeah, I lo- actually. And
1: I would add to that ironically that I think a lot of animals and zoos have better lifestyles and, and, basic quality of life and welfare. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The aquarium community has been doing this
1: better than us. They have. And that's that actually is one of the primary contexts of most applied ethologists. So I'm one of the only applied ethologists. um, Well, so Patricia McConnell is one for for reference Mm -hmm. for folks who very much um, is of this lens, someone like Temple Grandin. Um, But Patricia McConnell and I are two of the only applied ethologists in the United States that focus exclusively on dogs or companion animals When most applied ethologists are uh, considering the context of zoos uh, and farms are are the two primary environments, how can we, working with the natural instincts and behaviors and perceptions and needs of these different animals, provide a quality of life and welfare that answers the five freedoms? And, um, you know, we... We all too often are really missing out on that fourth freedom of providing opportunities to express natural behaviors for captive animals, for our dogs, because many of the most spoiled dogs I've ever worked with, spoiled in our definition, not theirs, Mm -hmm. um, have no autonomy of behavior, no opportunities to do what you were describing with the off leash walks where you can like Mm -hmm. actually decompress and you can breathe and you can return to some semblance of homeostasis by just deciding I want to walk over there and not over here. Um, And and I would argue even neighborhoods sometimes are, are anti-effective. They're the opposite of effective for what we're wanting because these dogs are so stimulated that they feel flooded by the experience of going for a walk. And so it's, it can be, uh, counterproductive, whereas even your own backyard might provide some some better kind of relief for them. Um, but we have to, as a culture and as communities, start finding creative ways, resources, new business models where people can literally go rent a nature park by the hour, you know, where you can Mm -hmm. go and someone just, you know, sets up the fence and the infrastructure and the online scheduling membership deal where you can go in and have your hour, lock the door behind you. And it's not a dog park where you have to worry about the other dogs and their behaviors and their perceptions of your dog signals and, you know, much less the other people there. And you can just relax and give that to your dog. As part of your regular lifestyle, we need stuff like this.
0: We do. And I had uh, Dave, his last name is escaping me right now. He created Sniff Spot um, on the podcast because I think Sniff Spot is the door to this for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, things like that. And I think once people realize it's a need and a necessity, the market grows. Right. Right. It's that people don't necessarily realize it's a need or a necessity. And the fact that our dogs are developing true mental health concerns just by not being allowed to express species or breed specific um, behaviors is something that I think it's just, it's kind of, it's not talked about to me on the level that it needs to be talked about.
1: I I completely agree. And I, I feel like it's basically, we're reaching a tipping point And a boiling point with pet dogs in this country, at least, and I think probably most of the developed nations, where we're either going to start changing the conversation and the things that we're doing to uh, solve the mounting problems, or we're going to end up at a point where it's going to be really difficult to come back from. And I think... You know, I'm not against breeding, but I think we need way more regulation and scrutiny about who's breeding and what for because right now, the value is it's purebred. It doesn't matter if it's poorly bred and both parents were completely neurotic and what no border collie breeder in their right mind would actually want to be developing but you have people that just get two border collies together to make some money off a litter and i think in the short run we're looking at stuff like this increasing because look at you know 2020 guys the demand for pet dogs went through the roof and guess what and the rescues and shelters are running out right you know and, yeah. and and yet there's a lot of people whose income went in the toilet at the same time yeah. and yeah. back since you know post world war 2 People have been looking to animal breeding as a way to bring in extra income and not necessarily doing it well at all. And I'm not judging people for doing what they need to to put food on their tables for their families. But what's ending up in the gene pool for a variety of reasons. I mean, we're fixing a lot of animals that are actually very well adapted to the circumstances. I love Sue Sternberg's idea of really talking about and t- putting into action, selecting animals for the lifestyles we have rather than preserving breeds mm-hmm. for, for the main populace, right? Because the main populace does not want your Border Collie or German Shepherd or my Pyrenees mix. The you know They think they're all beautiful but they will be disappointed, chronically frustrated. That dog will likely develop, quote, behavior problems, which are really symptoms of a problem between that key and that lock maybe get thrown on Prozac, go through five trainers before ending up surrendered. And now that animal has trauma from having lost their family and everything they know on top of that whole issue in the first place with the lock yeah. and the key. Yeah. I think that's so tragic. And I think the reason the cycle is escalating is because we're not getting to the heart of this lock and key issue.
0: I th- I think you're right. And I think even in, I think it's easy for people in kind of, my world, the sport dog world, or like the pet, the hobbyist trainer world to go, that's not us though. But it is all us. of us. Um, Specifically, it's us really big time when it comes to, again, border collies mm-hmm. and uh, working line Belgians. A lot of these dogs that I work with that are, you're having a lock and key issue. Mm-hmm. A border collie was not actually created to do agility or function well within the agility environment. The right. agility environment, I think, according to Border Collies, what I think their perception of that environment is, is hell for the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you have problems, right? That's why you, then you right. have you know, things pop up like the dog can't hold his start line stay and he's snarking at other dogs on the way to the arena and all, all of these different things that they're like, but well, it only happens in the trial scenario right. Because the trial scenario is hell for them. Yep. And I think and I see a lot of people, you know, they buy film the blank breed, but border collies happen to be the one that is most common to do agility with because they are the kind of world premier agility dog. Um, so I think, you know, we are not exempt from this because no dog agility is brand new in the grand scheme of dogs. And so are bite sports and so are things like that like all of this is brand new and we have kind of selected for traits for better or worse that maybe make them um faster or you know more tolerant of the environment i usually don't think of them as being more tolerant of it i think of them as being capable of turning it off because they're so kind of addicted to the sport that they're playing uh so we're not exempt and this is everybody and kind of turning the conversation back to, can you actually give this dog the opportunity to express what it's genetic makeup kind of tells it that it needs to express or not? And if the answer is not, maybe it isn't the right choice for you.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a, I feel like some, sometimes we just need to sit down and get real with ethics and philosophy. Right. And just like spitball about this stuff. Like, like going back to your comment about the invasive and intrusive nature mm-hmm. of manipulating an animal's behavior modifying their behavior in the directions we'd like at what point does that tip into a realm of being unethical like you know when when are we doing this in a way where the animal is a voluntary participant in their learning and they're having a dialogue with us versus being manipulated to express behaviors against their own will. And because there, there's that conditioning component to all of us where something gets on autopilot bef- without mm-hmm. us even realizing it. You know, one of my favorite examples for myself is I lived in a place one time where the hot and cold candles on a sink were reversed. And for, first of all, when I've lived there, I had the hardest time training myself to, t- to yeah. turn the different handles. And then when I left, that place of residence. I had a hard time untraining myself. I mean, it was like for years, you just find yourself doing the same behavior over and over again, whether it has any relevance. Now, some of that can be innocuous. Some of that is just random and just kind of in the way, but you talk about some of the behaviors that we are training for in dogs and then how that can be incongruent, not just with their kind of instinctual perception, if you will, going back to that neuroethology and the selection for what's meaningful, but you know it can also be incongruent to their own self-interest and their understanding of the world around them and, and them being able to adapt to these modern circumstances, because we keep contriving it according to our definition of what's best and what we want. And I hate to say it, but I find myself in the middle of this all the time. We are in a conflict of interest between the people who come to us as our clients and the dogs, Mm. because people come to me and they will literally give me a laundry list in many cases of all the things I want him to stop doing and do. And your job as the trainer lady is to program my dog to do A, B, and C and to never do D and E and F. Capish? Right. And we as an industry keep humoring that narrative. We keep saying, yes, ma'am. okay, so we're going to do this and this and this and we're going to erase these behaviors and we're going to have all of that done by Christmas. So your family can come and he'll just be the model dog. And that's bullshit. It really is bullshit, you know, and um. And and honestly, I, I I have to get into an uncomfortable angle here and talk about our beloved pities and all of the bullies because the unfortunate truth is is those poor dogs are still being bred by so many people that are actively, actively you guys breeding for fighting dogs like where most of these historic jobs are dead i mean how many people are really hurting in the united states how many people are really using livestock guardians really using terriers really using gun dogs maybe five percent people that are breeding for fighting dogs in the gene pool are still through the roof in major cities and rural areas across the united states that is the sad truth those dogs are being bred against their will to perceive certain things in their environment a certain way. And it doesn't mean they all will, but when they do then have those perceptions and responses to certain conditions, whether that be sudden restraint in the face of arousal, whether that be the context of a potential altercation, and then suddenly those perceptions and behaviors appear, we're all still shocked about it. And we're all like, oh no, he's just, he's, he's, you know, he's got faulty genetics. That's an anomaly that doesn't, you know, or you did something wrong. It's, there's no bad dogs, only bad owners. So someone must have abused him. All of that is erroneous guys. Like we, for the sake of those dogs and every other group of working dog out there, we have to talk about the ethics or lack thereof of breeding behaviors into these dogs that we actually have no desire or tolerance for as a basic culture. And then the ethics of manipulating those behaviors, once that animals here on earth to our ends, despite what those genes are, it is a real quandary for them. And they experience those instincts against their own will in the same way that we perceive them as out of our control. They aren't choosing to react that way to the bicyclist. If it's a border collie to the man walking in my front door, bringing a surprise Christmas present. If you're my guardian or to another dog raising a lip and growling at them. If maybe you are a dog bred for fighting that you will perceive differently than other dogs might perceive that and respond in a way that we would consider undesirable for the pet home environment. Now, again, nothing is predictive about genetics. They're just influential. They're a piece of the puzzle. To go back to my legs model, they're a quarter of the story. You have learning, environment, genetics, and self. And Those external conditions, the internal conditions, the experience and learning and those genes are all throwing their little hat in the ring to what is going to end up being the animal we're sharing our house and life with. And we can't ignore any of those pieces.
0: Right. We need to care about each piece. And we can't just say, I think because what I tend to see is, you know, yeah, if we've got four sections here that we care about. I think people then go, okay, great. So three out of four, I can influence. Mm-hmm. Right <laughs> after I bought the dog. Right. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that there, you could think of it as four legs. It's legs, right? On on the right, so it's actually four legs on the same animal, and all four legs are moving. Right, and, and they need to work in cooperation into the other. Yes, yeah, yes, in cooperation. Um. And I think that, you know, what matters, and I think you're right, and I think if we're speaking to our industry right now, mm-hmm. turning the conversation back to how do we, what does this animal need, and how do we help it have those things
1: mm-hmm.
0: as the first order of business? Right. Not, not as like, you know, it'll help us if
1: you feed from a puzzle toy. Right. Right. <laughs> It's like a tiny scratch the surface thing that's great but it's not going to be near enough. Right. And it's
0: like, you know, I got the great privilege of uh, touring a major zoo in the country that a friend works for and seeing all of their enrichment pieces. And, you know, there's a reason that the anteater has these enrichment things to do. And then the tiger has these enrichment things. Right, we don't give and, them all a snuffle mat. And they, call it. It. they don't. <laughs> right, they don't all get a snuffle mat. Right. It's not. You know, it is like the t- they were giving the tigers like they'll throw them a pumpkin, and then they've got this big thing that they can bite. Yeah, right.
1: Their teeth into it and thrash They're around like,
0: and break apart. Yes, yeah. and then the anteater has this like long PVC pipe with holes in it <laughs> that she can like stick her tongue through and like find all the little yeah pieces of food that are in there. And it's so important for us to think like that, to think like that and to say, I am not suggesting that you give your terrier a rat to kill, but I am maybe maybe suggesting that you do give it like a turkey neck that's in a sock and then also in a paper bag so that the dog has to eviscerate something. Right,
1: right? and and give them opportunities to dig to China in your backyard instead of planting a bloody rose garden. Oh, her, yeah, honey, you got maybe. a terrier. Hang it up. He's going to do your landscaping for you. You know, like, if somebody comes to me with a dog with a predilection for something like that, and they're just like, I just need you to stop, and I'm like, well, let's talk, talk about identifying an appropriate place and there. I literally have a client I'm thinking of right now. Bless their heart. They're such nice people. They have a two by four area of mulch in their backyard, which is the area the dogs are allowed to be in. They're two dogs. That's it. It's two by four. I'm not kidding you. And that's their outdoor toilet. She has a yard, but it's her garden. And so they're not allowed to use it. Oh and you're you you just don't know where to start right you don't know and and of course house training was partly what she came to me for and I was saying well first of all if you don't change the litter out of the litter box the dog's not going to go in there and pee in it so problem number one but why don't we open up the yard it was out of the question and this is a dog that is like you know what I weigh 140 pounds I'm not going to pee in a two by four oh, area. Yeah. Cause that's the equivalent of me pissing every day with right. an airplane. Like, yeah. You know? And yeah. so I, the, for the, from the dog's perspective, just wait till the people are down the hall or something and then go take a leak on the rug. Like wh- why, is that not a logical thought? Now their last dog worked with the system. So the thought is, well, that dog met the expectation. Therefore these totally. dogs frequently so frequently some wonderful dogs set up all the rest right. of the dogs to fail. <laughs> right. The last dog could deal with it. Um, and, you know, maybe though they don't remember the fact that that was a dog that they got when they were in their thirties and they were jogging three miles a day or whatever the case might've been. I mean, you know, there's a reason I didn't go and get an Aussie this last time when I got my Aussie, I was in college. She was my senior thesis project. I literally hiked three, four times a day, rode horses on right. the weekends and that dog could do 10 miles and come back and look at me like what next. It was, Unreal. And I don't have the time right now owning a business, being a mom. I, I just don't. And so there's a real reason I went and got a Pyrenees Newfoundland mix. That was what I wanted for my life right now. That was what I knew I could accommodate. Um, and, you know, I am able to turn on her behaviors towards appropriate outlets. We have a neighbor dog that the neighbors let out to run loose and run rabbits in the properties around our house. And every time he gets out, he's chewy, the adversary in our house. And we go, oh, no. Chewy's out and we encourage <laughs> her to run out in the yard and bark her little head off running the perimeter. And you've never seen a more satisfied dog doing exactly what they were bred to do, you know. Yeah. Um, but I realized that living here in the mountains of North Carolina, I have different opportunities available to me that people who are living in metropolitan areas and large cities might not. But that goes back again to what are the dogs that are going to work in that environment? Not how do we manipulate and modify their behavior ad nauseum against their will and compromise their welfare? Because too bad, that's the situation them they found themselves in. You know, we all just have to get more honest about what's happening. A hundred
0: percent. I think um, it's vital. Like you said, we're kind of spiraling mm-hmm. towards something because anybody who works in this field knows how rapidly these Big bad behavior things yeah. have been um, expanding. I mean, I know, you know, thinking the first puppy class that I taught, I don't know, fifteen years ago or something, was very different. Yeah, than the dogs
1: are the, different because the, the dogs are different, and, and our and lives our lives are different. Are different. Yeah. yeah, and it's I, I've seen that same foldover effect. I feel like things that I used to think were an anomaly that maybe I saw once or twice a year are just like common caseload four new ones it's a like week. Every Yeah. Uh Um, and, and I just, I'm sad. I'm frustrated for the dogs and their families because these are well-meaning people that are willing to pay good money to get professional help. And there's a reason they jump from trainer to trainer to trainer. It's not the L it's not the learning leg that's broken guys. I mean, I could debate with you all day long about the way I train, but that is not my soapbox. It is, I don't even think it's the most important thing for us to be asking. I think there's a lot of- Not know, even close. Not even close, <laughs> no, yeah, not even. <laughs> and, and so for me, I, I think that until we start- changing our agreements about dogs in this country away from the idea of it's your minion that you can manipulate to do whatever you want. And you get to pick the color and the shape and the coat size and, you know, all of that stuff. And, but it's just your pet, right? It's just here for you. And should you just put it on the right food, take it to the vet, take it to a dog training class. It will do your bidding 24 seven. I mean, that script y'all is still so prominent in our industry and in the pet public, there is a belief system in place that that's realistic. It's crazy. Very much so.
0: Very much so. And a, and a belief system that with, you know, if you just do the right, I don't know, training things mm-hmm. or whatever, um, you, they will be fine. And they will all be able to live peaceably together. Some of my hardest cases, are with intra-household dog aggression yeah. dogs that dogs that are plain and simple not compatible yeah and are being made to live in the same home yeah um you know we just we get these that is the narrative and it is a problem that all dogs are wonderful and you will you will do fine and they will be fine if you just I don't know
1: feed it yeah take it to the vet like it's very simple check the boxes right you just check this oh what do you, people come and they say. To me, I did this. I did all the things. I did a puppy class. I did a pet right. co class. I put the dog right. in daycare. I socialized the daylights out of him. I blah 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 blah. The list goes on. Right. And then they usually come to me at sexual or social maturity with that narrative. And yeah. what the heck is this? And I say, right. well, plain and simple. It's the genes that your dog came to the table with, and here's why, and here's the history of blah, blah, blah. And it's not abnormal behavior, actually, for that working group at all or breed. Um, It's actually breed typical, breed standard even. Well, then why did nobody tell me about this? I had no idea. See, there's there's the gap. There's where somehow we're failing. And just to say, needs lots of exercise, do lots of training. Get your dog engaged and active. Give him a job. Like needs to be socialized. I mean, that's like a needs big... needs to be month. socialized. For me, I read that now as a huge
0: red flag. If, if the breed standard says like requires socialization, I'm like, okay, great. They all do. So what you're telling me is actually the standard socialization is not, not going to... Happen-
1: Right,
0: <laughs> right, and
1: and then even t- talking about how to socialize. Like I thought, had the really interesting experience raising my guardian puppy because mm-hmm. she, for her, she she was finding strangers petting her, giving her treats as kind of aversive, like, and it wasn't even like I was forcing it upon her. She just literally was kind of like, I mean, I just don't really feel the need to like get all like intimate with strangers. (laughs) I just could like hang out here and like, that's fine. It's fine that they're there. But like, she was never going to become a pro-social dog. It just wasn't who she was. And so I actually completely modulated my socialization for her and I've done this for years so it, I mean it but it was as as her owner as her family watching how counterintuitive it was that less was more for her le- literally like positive experiences low levels of stimulation not even an over enthusiastic social human or other dog coexisting was kind of like exposure socialization was the most effective for her where it's like I don't actually want to meet that dog and play with it I'm perfectly fine with it being right there but no thank you and if you could make it not look at me that would be great too <laughs> you know and and so but we're not splitting those hairs as an industry we're sure as heck not doing it for the public uh, we just say socialize and people's idea of socialize is still pass the puppy take them to the dog park you know uh, take them to the barbecues let the green and kids carry them around. And that is not what socialization is for. Socialization is about literally in any species, a point of reference for everything else in life. Well, we're giving them some really interesting points of reference sometimes accidentally. <laughs> we are. And I think um,
0: that, that actually goes off of an interesting conversation I was just having, because I find that a lot of people are, just bombarding puppies and it's kind of popular too to do it to litters right now um to just kind of literally throw stimuli at these puppies constantly hands vacuums whatever loud tv um different weird moving toy every single day um don't worry then on then in addition they're doing like Actual intentional early neurological stimulation because because the dogs are not stimulated enough. Um, (laughs) We need more. I have to go. Wait a minute. Like when I'm talking about the dogs that I tend to like, which tend to be kind of I I think overstimulated. Yes. The second they come out of the womb. Yeah. I have to I have to get a little question mark above my head about that. And I I'm not claiming to know, and I'm not a breeder, Um, but I have to kind of go. I'm not sure if that's actually why. Well, I, I really
1: I, I really agree with you, and again, I'm really glad that this is something Sue Sternberg has talked about as well. Um, I, so first of all, we have this idea that exposure is desensitization. That's an erroneous assumption.
0: Not true. Okay.
1: So if we're just going to keep exposing under the assumption that we're desensitizing, we're in for quite a surprise because you never know which individuals are actually sensitizing to that, you know, versus desensitizing. You'll get the evidence pretty quickly after trial three of whatever that exposure is, you know, puppy class on the third day. Are we still hiding under the chair? This is not desensitization, guys. This is so bad and the, don't just say, "Come back again next week. I'm sure he'll get there because that puppy is actually having an aversive experience in puppy class, okay, and we are not kid gloving those those individual dogs in those circumstances and you know, I think Sue really made a good point about um How a lot of the best dogs, in terms of uh, being adaptive to our modern circumstances, are coming from rural environments with really little, by our modern definition, socialization. But A, nature's doing the breeding and working out the kinks. Yep. And then B, they're not so neurologically stressed during those really important developmental periods. And I think that's something that we need to be paying more attention to. And I am I think it's, is it Kathy Murphy is the one who does Barking Brains? Am, do I have that right? I think you do. I think it's turn. I'm going to like... Um, I, she's really doing some wonderful work looking at like what's actually happening in the brains of these animals, you know, it, it based on, you know, everything from the the arousing stimuli we're putting them through on a day-to-day basis, and then whether or not they're getting undisturbed sleep. So, I mean, just just that one point about undisturbed sleep and the effect on the nervous system and the basic stress level of that animal, think mm-hmm. about just dog's that are those puppies in that overstimulated environment where, you know, we have the TV blaring and the kids running around and the pots and the pans and the vacuums and all this stuff to try to desensitize our puppy. Or are literally when they're supposed to be sleeping most of the right. time. Maybe we're like actually that. preventing undisrupted yeah. sleep. And so we're causing a chronic base level of anxiety. And I'm not saying that, oh, there's this really clear answer out there, y'all, and you're just missing it. I'm saying right. it's complicated exactly. and we just have it's to start being brave enough to ask the the more challenging questions instead of digesting the simple narrative just because it's comfortable and familiar for us.
0: Well, and truly ask the question of, like, I've got, um, of the six Border Collies in my house, and then we have an Australian Shepherd as well, because we're crazy people. um, We've got, like, the whole gamut of, like, puppy raising. And two of the most stable dogs that we have were literally born in a barn on a ranch, had no intentional socialization from their breeder or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was literally their Border Collies, their ranch dogs that... They bred the litter to select their next working generation. We're talking dogs that have flown on airplanes. We're talking dogs that compete in loud, insane environments. We're talking dogs that are... The definition of stable. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's so that's that's beautiful. And it makes me think about another small subfield uh, of applied, not a field of applied ethology, but another, you know, canine science discipline that we really need to be paying attention to, which is epigenetics. So this really yeah. makes me think about lines of competition dogs, lines of champions, lines of sport dogs. Okay. So we know that. Genes actually are one of those things out of the four legs. We actually still can change after they're born. We used to think that we couldn't, but we can. We have limits, but literally an animal's genes are changed by their experience. So let's say you have a beautiful bitch female border collie that is just the most stunning thing ever. And while she's high drive and neurotic and reactive as hell, when you take her to the trials, boy, does she win. You've never seen a dog fly over the jumps like that. So we're gonna breed her because her pups are gonna fetch something pretty, right? And and really because- Wait, are you talking, are you talking specific? Oh, this is a joke, yeah. but I'm like- <laughs> Wait, I know the <laughs> No, I don't actually. <laughs> but I know that those dogs are plenty. And so, let's let's say that dog, winning as she might be, is super distressed from the flying and the airports and the travel and the trials. Those experiences are changing the DNA. She's going to pass off to her puppies. Swallows so important. That's crazy, y'all. That's crazy to think that the experiences you're putting your dog through, if they are to reproduce. Are literally changing the regulatory DNA, leaving epigenetic tags that they're going to pass to their offspring. So we might then, if we are competing with end breeding dogs, what are the implications for the offspring? Because it's not just whatever your dog was born with. It's also what you're putting in there through her experience. And we know the more trauma, traumatic or kind of critical to survival the experience is, the more likely yeah. it's going to be to leave that epigenetic tag as mental note. This could really have a you know implication for whether I live to see tomorrow. Because if it reaches that certain point of distress, those kinds of experiences go directly to the hippocampus on the long-term memory. And that's where they're doing their thing on the regulatory DNA by leaving a nice little epigenetic tag that says something about being in a crate in a high stimulating environment or whatever the experience might be. I mean, and so, again, suffice it to say, it's really complicated. And is, as is the case with many things with human civilization, we know not what we do. You know, right. but we are really playing with fire. And, you know, who's really losing? I mean, it's your average family and your average dog in a pet yeah. home not in any of these really extreme case situations. It's not someone beating their dog. That's the dog that's really suffering. It's the perfectly normal for whatever their genes were dog. That's been through the shelter six times because nobody's still telling the truth or trying to get to the bottom of it. Really when that dog goes to yet another home and, and we just keep missing the mark.
0: Absolutely. And so I think as far as actionable steps, Mm For the people So the audience is going to be professional trainers, hobby trainers. Mm-hmm. and then some, um, I definitely do have a chunk of just like pet owners, mm-hmm. pet people. Um, I think for us as trainers, it's have the conversation about this lens. Have a conversation about um, where this behavior is coming from and why, mm-hmm. and how allowing the expression of this behavior may actually be vital. For this dog's mental health, mm-hmm. don't get to just march in and change it, even though you can, mm-hmm. um, because it will it will affect something else, right? Like you go in, if you train, you effectively train the dog to not do X, y, Z, I you will affect something else. Some it will come out somewhere. Like a behavior, like energy, cannot be you know created or destroyed, yeah. right? It it must flow somewhere. Yeah. So, as an industry, having that conversation. As sport people, my crusade for a while has been I deal with a lot of mismatches between the person and the dog that they bought. And I think that's true in the pet world, too. But in the sport world, we don't expect it to happen to us because we're sport people. Mm -hmm. So we're going to agility trials every weekend and we're going to class three nights a week. We're doing all these things. So, like, of course, a Border Collie is perfect for me. When in reality, that really might not be true. Mm the people who have had border collies for a long time may not actually even be able to explain to you why, if that's not true mm-hmm. for you. Um, Cause I think that happens a lot. I think it's a little bit of a badge of honor to be like, well, they're easy for me. Right. Um, <laughs> is what a lot of people <laughs> like to say. And then as our, our pet people just learn about the dog that you have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then try to let him express who he is in the ways that are appropriate.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I think that, that is, uh, that new conversation is something that is far from complete. I think it's just beginning. And I think, mm-hmm. like you said, there's going to be different conversations had in those different spheres. And I think the first step is just our willingness to have it and the desire to learn and humble ourselves that there's more to dog behavior than dog training. Right. They're not, the same thing, um, yeah. and uh, that behavior is often, especially problem behaviors, a symptom for welfare or lack thereof, and we need to start looking at it that way, as opposed to something for us to just manipulate and proceeding with how before we understand why. Um, and you know, I th- the book meet your dog that I wrote is an offering to all of those spheres for just a way to get the conversation started. And my hope that we all come together and just keep talking. Um, Because I think more experts from different scientific disciplines are needing to come in and say, well, this is what I can offer from where I sit. And this is what I can tell you about the neurology of stress. And this is what, you know, I can tell you as a geneticist or, or whatever that specialty might be. And for us to actually listen, not just think it's kind of an interesting thing to attend at a dog training conference. I think conferences need to start being less about how and more about what and why and need to give more emphasis to who these creatures are historically and before we lay a hand on them in terms of our work with them and our relationship with them. And, you know, it's it's why um, we're we're really trying to expand what we're doing as a company to do more professional ethology consultations for cases for trainers and professionals and competitors. So that if there's something that they're looking at that they don't recognize, if they feel like they might be missing something and the how is not enough, that there's a place where they can come to learn more and ask those questions and try to fill in those blanks because it's a, it's an industry failure on the whole. It's no particular person's fault. We've just gotten really consumed in the L. The learning
0: we we have we've gotten really really consumed in because how cool is it that we can right. actually change right behavior? i mean let's just get on it it's addictive like we're all yeah freaks. like dog trainers are what i've observed is this and maybe i'm just talking about me control freaks <laughs> with trauma who then found something that they could control in their life and then and then just made a career right and so
1: completely <laughs> <laughs> yes completely and have unconditional love all at the same time right and, yeah.
0: Right. And so, but I'm finding it to be a really, really fascinating question of not just, can we alter this behavior, but should we? Mm -hmm. And how do we find the place where truly the client and the dog can both be happy and both exist.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Like the woman who wants her dog to use a two by four area of mulch because her garden is precious there has to be a compromise there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it is a compromise, right? Like I'd like the dog to just have run of her garden, but it's not my garden and that's also not my thing. Right. right. And so who am I to say that? Right. Like I can't say to her that she doesn't get a garden anymore than I should be saying to this dog. And you only get this two by four.
1: Piece and, and I think that's the honest, non judgmental place that we have to start. I actually really adore that client. I think the world of her, she's so completely committed willing to put the time in. And, you know, it's it's a fair question when it worked before, why isn't it working again? And what am I doing wrong? Or what can we can change so that you can mm-hmm. make it work? And it's like a relationship. We don't want to say, well, it's just the way that you are. I, you know, I can have no further expectations of you changing that. Otherwise, I just accept that you don't want to pee in the two by four area. And I will give you a bigger area and that's the deposit I can put in the bank account for our relationship so that I can keep making the withdrawals that I need to make about all of these other things, whether that's the amount of time I have for exercising or whatever it is. But I, I think that's why I, as a professional, started really wrestling with the whole idea, the very concept of dog training and all of the vernacular around it. Terms like obedience, commands, you know, um, and and. I think the whole concept of dog training really does need to evolve because it connotes control, uh, a one-sided dictatorship, really, of a relationship, whatever the flavor is, where I decide what your behavior is going to be. I will program you accordingly and you will follow my instructions reliably. So, and that is still our core value. And you know i i got really uncomfortable even putting myself in that professional bubble of a dog trainer because it is not how i perceive what i'm trying to do is to manipulate your dog's behavior as my my job my career and so we're offering a new model and a new conversation of family dog mediation which is the idea that there are two parties with even things to bring to the table. Now, one might be the parent and the child in the relationship, as is the case with the dogs. They, they, they can't have the autonomy to make their decisions. I'm not again right. suggesting you unleash them and see what happens. The world is the way that it is now, regardless of what we might want to change about it and reverse the clock about. And so how do we help them navigate that world? what do we need to put on the table for compromises and what are they trying to tell us that we're not hearing and we're not seeing and, and how can we then as professionals bring the interests of both parties together and create a contract that works for everybody?
0: Very much so, because I've said for so long that what I'm doing is more like family counseling (laughs) than anything. Right. And, you know, when you go to a counselor with any member of your family it isn't ever about change this person's behavior we might wish it in the case of my ex right maybe why you went but that's not what you doesn't ever get doesn't work it's actually all about like changing yours yes yeah in order to communicate better
1: function better yeah. um, and change our expectations sometimes we just yeah. you know i i feel like sometimes my job is just to to change someone's expectations about something and for them to even give themselves permission to not expect it. Cause they think everyone else expects it too.
0: I think it's a relief for a lot of people when we do that, when we say, Hey, you know, just so you know, your dog doesn't have to ever do this. Right still be a good dog and still be a nice dog. Yeah. I think leash walking is like the number one thing that I'm I'm always like, listen, my dogs are rarely on leashes and when they are, if they're bad puller, they're on a humane no pull device and I just don't care.
1: <laughs> I have used front attach harnesses for years as one of the few easy buttons that I can exactly. where most of my clients won't put the work in or the self-mindfulness and the consistency to do loose leash loose <laughs> correctly. Trained, trained and I'm well. like, you know yeah. what? For most dogs, how about you don't run to a harness? Push the easy button. You know, is it going to be a perfect loose Jay? No, will you be able to enjoy your walks again? Sure. Here's just the basic things to keep in mind. But like if you give them too much, then it's unfair to the person too, right? And yet, the model that we have, you know, to the other extreme of you don't have to have any mindfulness to your behavior. It is a one-sided situation. You get to decide what's acceptable in your relationship and not. And as a matter of fact, here's a little button you can push to shock the daylight side of the other party in the relationship. Whenever they're doing something you don't like, whether or not you were inconsistent about that five minutes ago or yesterday, it doesn't matter. And, you know, that's where th- that's the furthest extreme where I- I'm so c- happy that a company like Petco took shock collars off the shelf because whether or not shock collar training is, effective and humane in the hands of a qualified individual with perfect, impeccable timing and consistency is one thing. Whether that is humane in the hands of your average family with no idea about learning and conditioning, and, and maybe not that self-awareness uh, for what they reinforced five minutes ago versus now, that, like we went were talking about earlier, that creates confusion and insanity. And I think confusion is one of the cruelest experiences, disorientation, um, lack of predictability of circumstances that creates such fundamental distress and chronic need for hypervigilance because you never know what's going to happen. Um, that's, that's the bedrock of cruelty right there. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think above all else, we have to be able to make sense to our dogs, uh, and, and whatever ways we can accomplish that humanely is, is the best way we, we can go about it. But, um, You know, the that's the kind of stuff that we need to be chewing on more so than let's just beat up all these trainers and let's beat up all these trainers. And literally, they're all blaming each other for the increase in dog behavior problems. And they're both. They're
0: they're all wrong. And they all there's a lot of in group, like even the people who train all this way are all still pointing the fingers at each other. I know. Right. And again, yeah, just helping us have the conversation of, well, maybe we need to be talking about what a dog is and how we can better care for them mm-hmm. um, and helping people to do that. So rather than putting, you know, unrealistic long lists of things for them to do, helping people to do that, making it accessible for them. Mm-hmm. And then truly, they watch the dogs change Mm -hmm. then everybody's happier Mm -hmm. and it's it is so much better yeah when just you know making it very very simple and saying you know hey you know do rather than i mean the number of people who are relieved when i say so don't walk the dog in the neighborhood anymore
1: yep Cause they thought they had to, right? to be Everyone thinks I have to walk them around the block. Right. And actually depending on the dog, that might not be helping anyone. It's just hell. You all, you both endure every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: totally. So Kim, I think this is fantastic. I think we have some actionable steps for all the people mm-hmm. that are, listening, and I hope this is not our last conversation together. Cause I think we could jam on for, you know, the rest of the day.
1: I I do too. And I hope that this is the beginning of new kinds of conferences and new kinds of platforms and new kinds of groups and connections where it's okay to have these conversations because, you know, people think I'm doing a podcast tour. I'm not doing a podcast tour right now. People have been so excited about what they're hearing because we are intuitively, I think, feeling and seeing a lot of the same things, but a lot of folks don't know what they're looking at and they hear it described and it's just, Electrifying their cells with the sense of resonance for what their own experience is as a professional, and um, we we just need to keep the ball rolling. We need to all keep working together to um, to get to the heart of what's really going on and it's it's going to require some revolutionizing of the industry.
0: Wow. I'm here. I'm here on the front line. Let's
1: go. Sarah said it today. <laughs> it.
0: Sign up. All right. Thank you so much,
1: Kim. This was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you again. This has really been a pleasure.
0: And that's it, folks. Gosh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And be sure to give me your feedback because I think we should have Kim back as kind of a regular podcast guest. Um, if only so that I selfishly get to have these nerdy, fun, awesome conversations. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash CogDog and become a patron for as little
1: as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers.